Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Boker Tove, Torah students. <laughs> okay. Is this viewable? Visible? You can see it? All right. We got a thumbs up all the way from the back row. There's some seats open up here next to Katie Brown. If you want to join her in fellowship. If not, you're going to make her feel really bad since I've said that publicly now. <laughs> We're going to be looking at Leviticus chapter 17 together today. And in this chapter, what we're going to read about is statutes against eating blood. So this is the popular passage where we read about how life is in the blood. There's going to be a, a theological lesson that is to be taught from how blood is to be treated. And another key concept in here is the word cut off. You're either cut off from God's covenant because of disobedience to Him, or you're cut off into covenant with Him by His grace. So the words blood and cut off are going to be key words in here. And this chapter is about revering what makes you holy, which is the name of the lesson today, revere what makes you holy. Leviticus 17. So what, what is it in this chapter in particular that makes one holy? It is the blood in relation to atonement, which is what the last chapter was about in the Day of Atonement. Uh, the way that your sinfulness and your uncleanness is dealt with is through blood cleansing you. You know, blood takes that which is disordered outside of God's holy creation and orders it back into what it is supposed to be as a movement back to Eden. Now, in looking at this chapter today, as we consider these concepts of blood and being cut off from Leviticus 17, we're going to look at understanding this text. We're going to consider its New Testament application and end with just thinking through how do we revere the blood? You know, how do we revere ultimately the atonement of Christ, which this points us to? And so we'll look at some verses that address that. And a couple of quotes from J.C. Ryle, just so I can try to get you to read the book Holiness by J.C. Ryle sometime before you die, which you never know when you're going to die. So you should get the book sooner than later and get started on it. J.C. Ryle, Holiness, if you're taking notes right now. Let's start by looking at the first seven verses of Leviticus 17, and we'll see that blood here is only meant for Yahweh, and it's a way to teach us to reverence the, the thing that ultimately redeems and sets apart people back unto himself. Leviticus 17, beginning in verse 1, then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, speak to Aaron and to his sons, and to all the sons of Israel, and say to them, This is what Yahweh has commanded, saying, Any man from the house of Israel who slaughters an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp, or who slaughters it outside the camp, 
and has not brought it to the doorway of the tent of meeting, to bring it near as an offering to Yahweh before the tabernacle of Yahweh, it will be counted as blood guiltiness to that man. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. The reason is so that the sons of Israel may bring their sacrifices, which they were sacrificing in the open field, that they may bring them in to Yahweh at the doorway of the tent of meeting to the priest and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to Yahweh. And the priest shall splash blood, splash the blood, on the altar of Yahweh at the door of the tent of meeting, and offer up the fat and smoke as a soothing aroma to Yahweh, and they shall no longer sacrifice their sacrifices to the goat demons, with which they play the harlot. This shall be a perpetual statute to them throughout their generations. So as we continue in considering this chapter and the rest of this chapter, let's take a moment to pray for the Lord's help in studying His Word. Our gracious Lord, we thank You that You are the God who makes us right by the blood of the Lamb, ultimately Jesus Christ as we know, and we are to revere Him. We pray that You would teach us how to revere that which makes us holy, to revere the Christ who sets us apart to You, and to delight in all the things that His blood, His death affords for us and blesses us in the fellowship of being adopted as your people to know you and to enjoy you forever. Amen. These are words spoken from Yahweh to Moses and through Moses, not only to Aaron, but all of the sons of Israel. This is for everybody to know and to learn. So if they were to go out hunting and kill some animal somewhere, they were to know, you know, how do you revere God even in your hunting or how you deal with animals because it was permissible for them to, to kill certain animals and to eat them, which ties all the way back into the Noahic or creation covenant back in Genesis, and perhaps we'll come back to that thought a little later. But when it comes to them slaughtering an animal outside of the camp, they, need to they needed to think about how do we you know, live life outside of the camp in a way that brings us nearer to the dwelling place of God. You know, even when it comes to our eating and drinking and hunting and all of this stuff, we should think about this and how do I glorify God in this thing? And they were to bring it to the doorway of the tent of meeting. Now, what is another name for this place, tent of meeting? Yeah, it's the tabernacle. So it's like, what's going on with the, you know, the change of this word? Why is the tabernacle being called the tent of meeting now? Well, the word tabernacle means dwelling place, and when they built, the Israelites built the tabernacle, they were building God's dwelling place. But after it had been built, and they had built themselves out of it by moving further and further west as they had built the, the teaching model that would instruct them in their worship, it gets relabeled as a tent of meeting because the question is, well, you know, God's dwelling there, but we're outside here, so what hope do we have of ever being with Him since we're sinful and He's holy? So God says, it's a tent of meeting. I came here to meet with you. I came here to establish a relationship through covenant. So even this, this, hearing this word tent of meeting was a reminder of the promise of God with us. That sort of relationship like was had in Eden is a possibility and it is the goal of creation that man would enter back into that rest of living in God's dwelling place forever and ever again. Now, when it comes to this idea of blood being shed, in verse 4 at the end of it, it talks about a, a man who has shed blood, and if he misuses it, that that man shall be cut off from among 
his people, which ends up being a key word throughout Scripture that's tied to the language of covenant. Uh, in some Bible translations, when you hear about God cutting a covenant with people, this is that same word. You might read, you know, he made a covenant, and you'll see, you know, a little number one that goes down to a little footnote that says HB dot for Hebrew, and it'll say cut. Or in some Bible translations, you just see the word cut, so you can see the connection with this word cut off in relation to God's covenant. Some examples of this throughout Scripture is Genesis 9, 11 in the Noahic creation covenant. Indeed, I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never be cut off by the water of the flood, and there shall never again be a flood to destroy the earth. So this is a reminder of God's flood of judgment during the days of Noah, in which people that weren't in covenant relationship and in the ark were cut off from him, which was judgment and something that God alone carried out by himself. Later on in Exodus 31, 14, this is related again to this idea of rest or Sabbath. This way it says, therefore you shall keep the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death, for whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people, which you may recall that the Sabbath was the sign of the Mosaic Israelite covenant. And it, what the sign said is, you need this. You need to enter into God's rest. You're outside of it, but your life needs to end in the goal of entering into God's rest so that every day becomes a day in his rest ultimately. And in Leviticus, specific to blood, we hear in Leviticus 7.27, any person who eats any blood, even that person shall be cut off from his people. So you're either cut off from God's covenant or, you're, or God cuts a covenant with you, which is what happens with Noah and all creation happens later with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and future descendants to a multitude of nations, that God cuts a covenant with those who trust that they can be made right with God by trusting that He, he does that through blood atonement, which we discussed last, last week. So, key term here, cut off, relates Either you're cut off from covenant or into covenant with God. So there's a, a play on words that's happening with that there. Now, you see this concept developed more in that the reason that the sons of Israel, this is verse 5, were to bring these sacrifices that they were sacrificing in the open field, they were to think about it and how, does, how do we think about this in a way that brings us near to Yahweh rather than just staying out in the open field? Well, we bring it to the doorway of the tent of meeting to the priest and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to Yahweh and who remembers what the significance of the, the peace offering was? If you mumbled the word fellowship, you are correct. Or if you just thought it in your mind, you're also correct. And that's another way it could be translated. You know, it's fellowship offering. You know, why, why are you bringing game meat to the fellowship mill? For fellowship, that's why you're bringing it. You're, you're bringing it to, to give thanks to God for what He has provided for you, but not for you alone to enjoy it by yourself, but to enjoy it in family together. 
which is the idea of this. It's like, how do we have this fellowship relationship with God and with His family and with one another? It's like we bring the game meat to Yahweh and the way that He wants us to by draining out the blood, which we'll talk more about that as well. And this blood was to be splashed on the altar, and they were to offer up the fat, and the smoke is a soothing aroma to Yahweh, which is the idea of giving Him the best. And within this concept of fellowship, there's this negative idea also in verse 7 that uh, they shall no longer sacrifice their sacrifices to the goat demons. This was something that Israel had learned in Egypt to do. This was a common practice by the other nations. You might think of it in terms of the occult, O-C-C-U-L-T. But then, you know, occultic worship has always been a, a global phenomenon, which is related to animal sacrifice, uh, drinking blood, and sexual perversion, which is why you read in verse 7, they shall no longer sacrifice their sacrifices to the goat demons with which they play the harlot. So he's saying, you guys have to unlearn all of that stuff that you learned in Egypt, and you can't have this counterfeit sort of worship of blood because it's, it's adulterous within the covenant that you have with God. You're committing adultery by not being faithful to the one who has brought you into this covenant with Him. And this idea of blood intake ties into these ideas of union and empowerment. And I'll, I'll explain that, but I'll write this out first. Uh, blood intake. is tied to union and empowerment. I had to shrink that in because I only have so much board there. So, within occultic worship, especially of the Canaanites, Babylonians, those who surrounded the Israelites in the wilderness, of whom they already learned to worship like them. They just thought that's just how things are in the world. And God's telling you have to uh, unlearn that, but this was something that they, they understood the significance of goat demons, which they wouldn't call them goat demons. It's just a word for uh, male goats, but they were associated with certain things. And so people thought, you know, the, the goat, uh, I'm trying to think like how you say these things like politely to, to Christian people, <laughs> which, which is us. Uh, within the blood intake, the, the people would see there's a certain life that the, the goat has where he has the ability to uh, reproduce through the reproductive act as a way to worship and promote life, which led to uh, types of prostitution, temple worship, which was a, a deviation from God's idea of covenant marriage and how we were to think of blood. So people think, okay, if we want goat powers, you know, how do you get it? Well, they understood the power is in the blood, ultimately, because they recognize Okay, if you, if you take an animal and you drain the blood out of it, its life is gone, which is the idea of, you know, the life is in the blood. So people got intuitively, you drain the blood out, there's no more life in it. But if you want the life of that animal, you can drink it in you, and if your body can hold it, you can become like that animal and be able to do the, the stuff that it did. So that's the idea of union. If you can take that blood in, you'll have a union with goat power. Uh, that was the empowerment, which you can see how God is going to, you know, reverse this uh, satanic idea within when Jesus says, you know, this, this is the cup of my blood of the new covenant, which would be, you know, incredibly offensive to a Jewish person, which is like, mm -mm -mm. <laughs> we don't drink blood, and they didn't. 
but he was tying into the theological point of it with you abiding in him, having union with him, and being empowered by Christ to, to live by the power that he brings into your life. So it's union with him. Now you're in relationship with him, and he's the one who empowers uh, living in him, just like a, you know, a branch being grafted into a vine. That sort of theological concept is being played out here, and it's tied, obviously, to the Lord's table and the, the new covenant. And to sit at God's table means that you're not sitting at another table. You can't sit at goat demon table anymore, and you can't bring uh, goat demon stuff to the Lord's table because it's His table. He makes the rules there. He sets the menu, and you can't deviate from it or you get cut off is the idea. And we read this same sort of concept in 1 Corinthians 10.20. If you want to turn there with me, 1 Corinthians 10.20. And this is where Paul is addressing, you know, the conscience issues of now you have uh, Gentile believers mixed with Jewish believers, different religious understandings where Gentiles, you know, they, they're coming out of a, a life where they sacrificed animals to, to idols, where they were blood drinkers, and now how do you, you know, become a part, you know, become one man and one, one church under one Lord and work out some of these religious differences that you've had in your background. Now, looking at 1020, 1 Corinthians 10.20, it says, No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. You, see, you can't bring old ways of life into God's worship. You can't bring your understanding of religious things in your devotion to God. Uh, you, you have to come out totally from the things that you've learned in your previous life and be retaught how to view absolutely everything in life by God's instruction. Well, what if that table is misused or treated in an unworthy way and not reverenced? Paul addresses that in chapter 11. So now we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we'll pick up in verse 27. This is 11, 27. There, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must test himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. So he's emphasizing the seriousness of you know, reverencing blood atonement the way that God has instructed them per the Lord's table. And he explains to the Corinthians, the reason that some of you are weak, some of you are sick, and some of you are dead is because you, you haven't reverenced the Lord's table. And God has judged you, and that some of you have even experienced what we might call premature death, because you were such a blasphemous witness of, of God's name that for the sake of the purity of His church, He just had to graciously end your life. And so, He's heightening the, the seriousness of you need to revere uh, what makes you holy. You need to revere the, the blood of Christ, which sets you apart uh, unto God. You can't 
treat things how, however you want to in life, especially blood, especially the Lord's table and how we think about our worship together. Now, moving on in Leviticus, we're going to pick up in verse 8 together, Leviticus 17, 8, and this concept of blood is tied into this theological idea of death, and what we're going to read about here is this, there's, there's only one blood death that gives life. That's the purpose of this practice of blood ultimately. There's only one way to God. There's only one truth. There's only one life. There's only one way to be, you know, cut into covenant with God, and every other broad pathway is to be cut off from covenant. Let me see that here in 17, pick up verse 8. Then you shall say to them, any man from the house of Israel or from the sojourners who sojourn among them, who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the doorway of the tent of meeting to offer it to Yahweh, that man shall also be cut off from his people. And any man from the house of Israel or from the sojourners who sojourn among them, who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore I said to the sons of Israel, no person among you may eat blood, and no sojourner who sojourns among you may eat blood. So here we see the development of this theological idea of blood and that it's tied to, there's a death that brings life, but there's only one death that brings life. It's through a lamb slain in place of man that one is given life, which you can hear here the concepts of God taking Satan's weapon, death, and using it back against him. You know, he takes death and through death gives life because God is the great curse reverser. He is the one who defeats the enemy of death and gives life through it. Now, developing this idea of being cut off, we should look at Romans 11 and keep your place in Leviticus. And look over at Romans 11, which I think gives us a, a clear picture of this concept of cut off from covenant or cut into covenant with God. This is in 11, chapter 11. Uh, to give a little bit of context, so you'll look at verse 1 in Romans 11. He says, I say then, has God rejected his people? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a seed of Abraham and a tribe of Benjamin. So he's focused in on the family of Abraham, and he says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah and how he appeals to God against Israel? And so he continues on here. And he's focused in on Abrahamic blessing. He's focused in on the father of a multitude of nations. And he's dealing with the issue of you know, Jews and Gentiles in the church where Gentiles are thinking, it looks to us like the Israelites are cut off from the covenant because you know, they advocated for the crucifixion of the Messiah Christ that we believe in, which, you know, Paul's been establishing here in Romans 9 through 11, how that's not the case. Uh, for these people, you know, the, the covenants were still theirs. God was not changing what He had promised through covenant 
to these people or to the entire multitude of nations through Abraham. So listen to the word cut off, picking up in verse 22, how it's used in two different ways here. It says, Behold the kindness and severity of God to those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. So you see that? You'll be cut off from you know, Abrahamic covenant blessings if you don't endure in faith as Abraham did. And he says, verse 23 now, and they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted in to their own olive tree? So you see there's this idea of you can be cut off from being cut off to be grafted back in. That's the idea. So you think when you do grafting, you have to cut off a branch from one thing somewhere else, and then you go graft it into another tree. And so this word uh, cut off, you know, it can either be cut off from Abrahamic covenant or cut into it by grace through faith in the root of Christ righteousness. Any, any questions on that, that concept of being cut off at this point? All right, we're all nods and smiles. Good. The idea that's being emphasized here and think about how one is made right by God is through faith in this one blood sacrifice of the Lamb Christ. Uh, I got to think how I'm going to draw this up here because this all gets put on video. So the blood intake, it's tied into these ideas of union and empowerment. That's one subpoint we mentioned. There's only one blood death. Blood slash death that gives life. And this was something that comes, you know, not through union with goat demons or by the power you think you get from goat demons, but through union with Christ and being empowered by being saved by, by Him through His Spirit. So you see, the, the point here is theological, not biological. You know, it's not about, you know, the liquid itself, like you need to go to one of those strange Roman Catholic stores and buy a vial of Christ's blood or something. They still sell those. I don't know how they, they got it. But. <laughs> or it wasn't the idea that necessarily, you know, people would get sick and die from drinking blood. Obviously, people still lived after they, they did that, but it was for a theological purpose within God's creation, which this is something that's tied into creation and not merely the Mosaic Israelite covenant, this idea of blood, which I'm, gonna, I'm going to Genesis 9, 1 to 4, which is where we see that. It says in Genesis 9, 1 to 4, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and the fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you as with the green plant I 
give all to you. So steak and salad for you. He says, however, flesh with its life, that is its blood you shall not eat. So there's, there's this concept that God's already building out within creation. You, you don't drink blood because that's, it's going to teach you something about life, which you now see that developed in Leviticus is that there's one blood, one life that's given in your place that is going to bring you to the goal of this Noahic creation covenant. Which one, what is the goal of the Noahic creation covenant? It's on the railroad tracks of the railroad of God's rest. Yeah, everything has to enter back in to that. And we learn within the Abrahamic covenant that the way that rest is brought back to the land and the seed to be under his blessing again is by faith that God is going to do that somehow. The Mosaic covenant is further instructional. How does that work? You know, how do we get to ride that train? And God gives them a, a teaching model through the tabernacle worship that would disciple them and how to understand these things, but it would also be a witness to the nations. Because you can think with the nations around them, it'd say to the sons of Israel, you know, why, why do you not drink the blood? What's the di- like, Everybody does this, and we know that it's good and amazing. So the Israelites would then be able to explain because, you know, our God is not a God of death, but He is the God who brings us life through death, but it's not through the goat demons. It's through a sacrifice that He's promised to give us through another shedding blood in our place so that we can be redeemed from dishonoring Him through old ways of worship like we used to participate in. What you could see for the sons of Israel in their infancy, this would also protect them from those other nations. And say, you know, we, I, actually, I can't come over for dinner. <laughs> I'm sorry, because I can't eat what you're eating because my God is holy. But it was also you know, a way to protect them from going over to that kid's house, which always brought disorder back home. So you think about that, you know, God, these are the children of Israel. These are not the mature adults of of Israel. So this would guard them from idolatry, which was important at this stage in redemptive history because God is building a a nation here. You know, they're they're not ready to go and be witnesses yet. They they haven't been prepared to understand uh, how salvation worked yet. Not, not many of them had even been saved, but they needed to, to be redeemed. They needed to understand redemption, and then they could be sent out to the nations. But even as they would have these limited interactions, you know, the God as a father parenting them gave them a, a diet which would shield them from the idolatry that was around them. So this idea of blood was tied in to creation. It was not unique just to the Mosaic Covenant. And you see that also when you skip on over to Acts chapter 15. Now, this is after Peter had already had his dream of the... uh, theological significance of the dietary laws, which something new was happening in history, in which now the, the church was co- coming to mature manhood. You know, they were moving from, you know, the children of Israel to one new man with Jews and Gentiles brought together as one new man, not as one new child. And maturing and understanding the theological significance of what was taught in what we sometimes call the Old Covenant. And 
you can imagine the sort of disputes in these, you know, Jewish believers, Gentile believers coming together, and there's recognize this new covenant thing is totally changing how we look at the world and each other and changing everything in our lives down to uh, what food we eat. And I think where we're going to pick up here in this chapter. Let's pick up in verse 13, Acts 15, 13. Now, after they had Stop speaking, James answered, saying, brothers, listen to me. Let's just, you know, this is a fellowship word. You know, from, from one Jewish guy, he wasn't saying, you know, my Jewish brothers. He wasn't just saying, and then you Gentile outsiders. He just calls them all brothers at this point, and they're trying to sort this new family concept out. And he says, Simeon, that's Peter, has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After these things, I will return, and I will rebuild the fallen booth of David, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. Therefore, I judge that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. So what he has in mind here, we're not going to trouble them with the dietary laws that we feel like our consciences are bound to. So it's going to take some time to retrain our consciences, but we're not, our conscience isn't going to be anybody else's Bible. The Bible is going to be their Bible rather than us. And, and here's the key verse, verse 20. He says, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from sexual immorality and from what is strangled and from blood. So he's tying into Leviticus chapter 17 here, saying this is a theological principle built into creation to protect people from worshiping idols, the sexual immorality that's tied from that, and the blood that's often drank in those sort of ceremonies, which means that this, this principle continues today. There's still a theological reason and why we go hunting. Maybe you go hunting with your pagan buddies, and they're like, well, why are you pouring out the blood, and why don't we drink some of it together? And say, because God in His creation has designed that we don't drink the blood as a way to teach us that there's only one blood death that gives life. And the way that we reverence that is by pouring out the blood to remember the blood of Christ that was poured out for the many. So it's another way to be a, a living gospel tract if you ever go hunting with pagan buddies. So what about that rare steak? I know that some of you are thinking about that right now because it's like, isn't there some blood in that? Well, the, the idea here is that, you know, the animal, you know, a after it's killed, the blood is poured out of it rather than, you know, just letting it coagulate inside of the animal, which is why they couldn't eat roadkill. You know, so, you know, if you find a strangled animal or one that's already dead, that's why you don't eat it. Uh, you want to show respect for life even in your uh, hunting practices. You see here that this is all, you know, ways to witness to the world of the, the life-giving blood death of Christ, which is built into God's creation. May you read more about that in Leviticus 17, picking up in verse 13. Leviticus 17, 13. So any man from the sons of Israel or from the sojourners who sojourn among them, can you see this is a this would be a gospel tract to the sojourners. It says, Who in hunting catches a beast or a bird which may be eaten shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. For as for the life of all flesh, its blood is identified with its life. Therefore I said to the sons of Israel, You are not to eat the blood of any flesh, for the life of all flesh is its blood. 
Whoever eats it shall be cut off. And when any person eats an animal which dies or is torn by beast, whether he is a native or a sojourner, he shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and remain unclean until evening. Then he will become clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his body, then he shall bear his guilt. I didn't finish answering the question about the rare steak. You can eat it. As long as they pour out the blood, you know, there's going to be some that's left. But you want to cook it to a safe uh, temperature to where uh, you wouldn't get yourself sick. So enjoy the rare steak if that's your thing. Medium's probably a better way to go, but that's just personal preference. <laughs> now I get an amen. All right. What you see here is that this misuse of blood, it, it, makes, it makes somebody unclean which is the idea it, it disordered them from orderly worship. And it affected their fellowship with God. It affected their service to God, which is, you know, the next point I'm going to bring out here, which is that, you know, how reverencing what makes us holy, it affects our fellowship, and our witness. It affects your fellowship and that you end up temporarily, you know, cut off from being able to be a part of the, the tent of meeting worship. It, it affects your service to God because now you can't be with those people because you have not been living by God's way and walk of holiness, but you've been living according to your own way and walking in your own way rather than His, and it, it affects your usefulness to God's kingdom. But it also ties into our, you know, our witness to the world. You know, when we're not living according to God's way, and there's disorder with even in our church fellowship, it, it is, it's a messed up, distorted sort of gospel track to the world because one of the things that uh, Jesus said of his disciples in the gospel of John is, says, they will, they will know you by your love for one another. You know, if there's disorder, a lack of love, a lack of unity, a lack of peace within the body of Christ, well, what that communicates to the world is Jesus Christ never came incarnate to this world to establish peace with God or anybody else. Just look at these people. Look at how they're disunified. And obviously, Christ's blood, all of this is a myth. It has no power to bring unity and peace to anybody. But you can see why, you know, unity and peace are such high priorities in Scripture because uh, our unity and peace is evangelism. You know, when we meet and we love one another, this is evangelism 101 to the world. Just, I mean, the fact that we're here and people know that we're here and we love one another rather than complaining about one another, grumbling about one another, that's a witness that Christ died to save sinners and to transform them and to bring them into a new family and to give them a real peace with God in His family with one another. You can see this sort of concept in Hebrews chapter 10. If you want to turn there with me, I want to look at Hebrews 10 together and look at, start at verse 26 first, and we're going to work back to another thought in it. This is Hebrews 10, 26, and this is going to be an example of not revering what makes you holy, not revering the blood of Christ. Hebrews 10, 26, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy by the mouth of two or three witnesses. 
how much worse punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as defiled the blood of the covenant, by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? So, concerning this concept of blood, you see that that was the thing by which the new covenant was ratified. It was ratified by the death of Christ, by Him giving Himself as the, the substitute death judgment bearer in our place that we've been sanctified, that is, set apart to Christ to have life in Him. But the way that we trample that underfoot is by not walking in the blessings that He has given us which some of those are mentioned moving back in verse 24 to 25. So the way that you defile the blood is by taking God's name in vain and not living in the blessings that He's afforded us. Some of them are here in verses 24 and 25. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. So one of the things that the blood of Christ has afforded us is this gathering, you know, the church gathering and to have the opportunity to stimulate one another in the love that God has brought us into, of that Trinitarian love to be expressed in the diversity of the members of the church and to stimulate one another in good deeds, which is a synonymous way of speaking about holy living. You know, we've been given the privilege of walking with God and like God and encouraging one another in that. So verse 25 says, not forsaking our own assembling together. So remember all of this, this blood ritual, this concept of the Lord's table and sacrifice is all about peace fellowship offering. It's about the peace we have with God and fellowship with one another. He says, don't forsake that. Don't forsake the fellowship that we have together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. One of the ways that we revere the blood of the covenant is simply by gathering together and encouraging one another in the, the life that God has instructed us in. You're probably familiar with these concepts of the milk of the Word and the meat of the Word, as it's brought up in Hebrews, which one of the things that I, I think is interesting from this class to the main service is what, what I'm giving you is the milk of the Word, which is the author of Hebrews. He says, you know, the milk of the Word is all that stuff about the tabernacle worship. It's all that elementary stuff about washings and repentance from sin and what all of those things signified. It, the meat of the Word is stuff like Philippians 4, like not being anxious, but having faith that if we pray with thanksgiving, we will have the peace of God. So that's the meat of the Word. It's moving from just knowing a fact to following it and walking in it. It's moving from knowing about the way of holiness to walking in holiness. So that the meat is the, the living out of being nourished on the, the educational milk of the Word. And I'm going to have to move real quickly through some of these uh, benefits that are related to the blood of Christ and make my commendation for reading J.C. Ryle's book, Holiness. Matthew 26, 28, Jesus said, "'For this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins.'" You know, through Christ's shed, shed blood, we have the forgiveness of sins. You know, we don't just have the, the picture of it coming in the future, but the reality that it has happened in the past. Uh, all of our sins have been totally forgiven. You know, all of our sins in the past, all of our sins presently, even the ones we're not even aware of, and the ones that we'll commit in the future. You know, blood has afforded us, you know, the confidence that we can approach the throne of grace because Christ has entered into the holy place 
to bring us into the holy place. It talks about that in Hebrews. In John chapter 6, Jesus says to the disciples, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. Which again, for Jewish people to hear this, is like, this is bizarre. This guy is crazy like we thought. But what he was tying in to wasn't, you know, biological blood, but the theological idea that God was teaching of union and empowerment, where he says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Another benefit of the blood is found in Romans 5, 9, much more than having now been justified by His blood. You know, we've been made right with God by Jesus satisfying wrath in our place. Having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. You know, there is no sin that you'll ever commit that will bring the wrath and punishment of God on you ever because Jesus Christ has taken all of that punishment, which means that you don't need to punish yourself for your sins. You don't need to punish another believer for sinning against you and thinking, you know what? Jesus' blood wasn't enough to cover their sins. I think I'm going to give them a tongue lashing today. It's like, no, Christ totally died for all, all of the punishment of their sin. People don't need to be, believers don't need to be punished anymore. So, that affects, you know, how we view ourselves as saints and how we view other people, other saints within our fellowship. And now for a quote from J.C. Ryle in the book of Holiness. Do you fear wrath? Christ can deliver you from the wrath to come. Do you feel the curse of a broken law? Christ can redeem you from the curse of the law. Do you feel far away? Christ has suffered to bring you near to God. Do you feel unclean? Christ's blood can cleanse all sin away. Do you feel imperfect? You shall be complete in Christ. Do you feel as if you were nothing? Christ shall be all in all to your soul. Never did a saint reach heaven With any tell but this, I was washed and made white in the blood of the Lamb. The name of the book is Holiness by J.C. Ryle, if you want to buy a copy of that. So concepts we've already talked about, Christ's blood, it affords us forgiveness, unity, peace, redemption, confidence. There's no condemnation for us, no judgment because the blood of Christ speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. But you remember the blood of uh, Abel, what it cried out for was judgment. You deserve just judgment for your sins against God. But it says, Jesus' blood speaks a better word, forgiveness. You know, it doesn't speak you deserve to be judged, but you will be loved because of Christ. And in 1 Peter, it speaks of the blood of this way, of us elected exiles, that according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to the obedience of Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So he's tying the sprinkling of blood with obedience you know, he's quoting the, the ratification of the Mosaic Covenant when the priest came and the, the blood was sprinkled on him, which was a way to say, uh, if we don't live for you with, our to- with the totality of our being, we deserve to have our blood shed. So it's a commitment of obedience. And he pulls that concept together here. And saying, the sprinkling of of blood has afforded you the benefit of living in obedience. And so he says, may grace be multiplied to you. It's like, 
May the power to live out that obedience be multiplied to you and peace be multiplied to you where you're enjoying that peace that you have with God and with the fellowship with one another because you've, the freedom that you have is freedom from sin and freedom to obey Christ. And the last example of the benefits of blood that I want to reference is found in Revelation 12, 11. It speaks of the blood of the martyrs, and it says, they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb. You see, the blood of the lamb is tied to our overcoming in this life and finishing the race. And because of the word of their witness, and they did not love their life even to death. The blood of Christ gives us victory over the guilt and power of sin. And he takes you know, the, the record book of all of our sins and he takes all of the ink out of it. And it's just a bunch of blank pages and you can take it and throw it away because it's a useless book. Who wants to read a book with nothing in it? But that debt has been canceled in Christ, but also the power. We don't have to live with sin as our boss anymore, which is the real war that we're in. As Peter describes it, it's the war with our sinful passions within ourselves. And we join the fight of the faithful throughout the ages of those who it speaks about in Hebrews 11 who lived by faith that God really does cleanse us from sin and will glorify us. Which brings us to end with a quote on the fight that God has brought us into from J.C. Ryle in his book, Holiness, where he writes, Let us remember that thousands of soldiers before us have fought the same battle that we are fighting and come off more than conquerors through him that loved them. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb, and so also may we. Christ's arm is quite as strong as ever, and Christ's heart is just as loving as ever. He that saved men and women before us is one who never changes. He is able to save to the uttermost all who come unto God by Him. Then let us cast out doubts and fears away. Let us follow them who through faith and patience inherit the promises and are waiting for us to join them. Finally, let us remember that the time is short and the coming of the Lord draws near. A few more battles and the last trumpet shall sound and the Prince of Peace shall come to reign on a renewed earth. A few more struggles and conflicts and then we shall bid an eternal goodbye to warfare and to sin, to sorrow, and to death. Then let us fight on to the last and never surrender. Thus says the captain of our salvation, he that overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. We'll close in prayer here. We thank you, Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, who through your blood, through your death, you give us life and you cleanse us to make us holy, not only on the record books of heaven, but increasingly so in this life as we continue to put off sin and to put on the new man that is Christ, to put off old ways and to put on new ways which will be the only ways that we will be glorified to because your blood has also afforded us to be in union with you who was resurrected, that we would be resurrected with you to have holy bodies free from all of the uncleanness and disorder of this life to be brought into the ordered enjoyment and holy life
which is your goal for us to rest in forever and ever. I pray that this message would bear much fruit in our lives, that us who have been cut into your covenant by your grace would live by reverencing the things that you have given us to help us to grow in holiness, the remembrance of your blood, the fellowship of the saints. May we encourage one another to live as the overcomers that you have given us the power to live as, that we would be stirred in love and good deeds as we are assembled together this day. Amen.